Well, summer is over. Yeah. You know, the, it's actually not. The first service, I thought I was going to be, there's going to be a rush of the stage. I was a little concerned for my safety. Um, you know, for me, this is the first Sunday since I think June 8th that I've worn shoes in church. So for me, it kind of marks not just Labor Day but and in, in the ending of our summer sermon series, but it really kind of wraps the summer and changes our mindset. You know, kids are back to school. I know the autumnal equinox has not happened yet, but essentially we're kind of moving on. But we want to kind of hit the pause button here this morning and really recap our summer. Um, and, you know, for some of you, you've actually never heard me preach because it's been since June. You started attending here, so I thought I'd actually introduce myself a little bit this morning. Uh, my name is Gary Campbell. I serve on the pastoral team here uh, as the lead pastor. Uh, grew up here at GBC um, and had the privilege of just kind of growing up under some great teaching, great leadership. Uh, yes, it is still true even today that there are a couple of you out there uh, who actually changed my diapers. And that is a fact. Um, so there's that. Uh, my great-grandfather was involved in the very beginnings of this church, and there's a certain sense in which I still have this, like, pinch me that I get to do this, right, and, and the privilege of preaching in particular. In fact, that's one of the things that, that stepping aside from preaching for a lot of the summer here and doing other things, uh, it really gives me a sense of both the privilege and the responsibility of bringing God's Word to you all, and so I'm grateful for that. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 20 years in just a couple of weeks, just a few weeks. So praise God. Yeah, we're excited about that. Um, it's been an amazing journey. We're, we're, we're really blessed. And we have four children. Our oldest, uh, Gary, is a sophomore in college. Our uh, middle son, Will, is a senior at Waterford High School. And our youngest son, Nathan, is a junior at Waterford High School. Our daughter... And yes, there's one youngest daughter with three older brothers. We'll, we could talk more about that, but we won't. Uh, she's a, in middle school at Clark Lane. And uh, this picture is one of our summer events. We did what we like to call an ice cream tour. Uh, we do from time to time, usually once a year or so. Uh, sometimes we get up to as many as four ice cream places. Places That's what we'll do for an afternoon. So this was at Buttonwoods. But because of kids' sports schedules, we only went to two places. So we went to Buttonwoods and Gumdrops and Lollipops. A lot of fun. And uh, just one of those summer memories that, you know, you kind of take with you and you put away. Um, in fact, I, I kind of want to open with that question to you this morning. You know, what's the highlight of your summer? What's the thing that you'd say, you know, as you think back on the summer of 2022, gosh, this was the event, this was the moment, or this was the relationship, or this was the thing that really was the highlight of the summer of 2022. You know, for me, it was this event that I went to with my daughter. It was a daddy-daughter dance that my daughter and I went to. It was put on by our brothers and sisters at St. John's Christian Church. Uh, and I went, as you can see, with a few guys from GBC, Men were looking to go with some more guys next year uh, because despite, uh, my daughter and I both had a little bit of trepidation about, right, like going on a daddy-daughter dance. What's this going to be like? And it was a blast. We had a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I think part of what made it palatable, if you will, is that it was all fathers and daughters. And uh, we created some memories together, and it was really an opportunity for us to bond. Now, my wife at the time was in Poland on the Poland team. My boys were at camp, and so I had already planned on some intentional time with her. Uh, but this is a, event is, is one that I will cherish and will remember for, for a really long time. And I wonder for you, what is that thing? What is that day or that moment, that relationship? You know, it's been, it's been humbling 
this summer to hear from several of you uh, that this series, that the Unusable series, maybe a particular Sunday or the series as a whole, was one of those things uh, that God uh, really used in your life that's been a highlight. And I wanted to take just a moment to say thank you to the glory of God, to those who brought the messages this summer. Can we say thank you to these gentlemen this morning? I'm reminded of uh, a verse from 1 Thessalonians that's sort of become a theme verse for my year, and, and I wanted to share it with you kind of on behalf of those who preached this summer, because I know all of them, and I know their hearts, and Zach and I had the privilege of kind of working with them, and, and so listen to the words of Paul kind of on behalf of those who preached this summer. He says, we cared so much for you, GBC, that we, sh- we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become dear to us. And I know in the process of message preparation that each one of these brothers as they prepared had this deep sense of of affection and responsibility to share not only the gospel of God. It's not heretical to say we don't just share the gospel, but we share our lives too, right? Paul was very clear about that, that he invested himself and poured himself out. And and the gospel is encapsulated in our humanity, in each of our journeys. And we heard that from uh, the guys that shared this summer, and it was uh, just a wonderful thing. Uh, it's, a, it's one of the neat things of our summer, of our year, our calendar year, uh, the way that we do summers. I'm grateful for those that, that shared. Now, it's my job this morning to kind of bring all that to a, a conclusion, to move us to a place of saying collectively, what are the things that we gleaned? And this morning, I'll tell you right where we're going. We're moving to a place where we're ready to receive the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe not everybody in the room can see there's a communion table in front of us here. We're going to be taking Christ's body, taking his blood, reminding ourselves that we are the corporate people of God. So in summary of our summer series, we're going to wrestle with this idea of two profiles and the hope of Christ, so the hope of the gospel. And so what I want to do this morning is look at all of the characters that we studied this morning Uh, that we started this summer with one seminal point. You are unusable. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? How uplifting. Thank you so much for telling me that, right? I am unusable. You are unusable. That was the, the point that we heard every week. And probably you resonated with each character that we looked at each week for different reasons. But look at them and listen to the, to the sort of the, the overall issue that they bring to the table because they all have issues. Listen to it collectively as we sort of form this composite of what makes the people of God unusable. So we began with Tychicus in the first week of June. We said that Tychicus had issues of obscurity or, or a lack of notoriety. He's little known. And representatively, at least for those of us who maybe feel like we're kind of obscure, we're on the margins of life. Zacchaeus had social issues, if you will. He was an outcast sort of of his own making, at least partially, but he had social issues. Josiah, family of origin issues. If you're familiar with Pete Scazzaro and any emotionally healthy stuff, right? That's one of his big topics. Josiah had family of origin issues. He's born, he's, he takes the kingdom at a very young age and the kingdom's corrupt and his family's corrupt. Uh, he got issues. Lydia has marital status issues. She's a single woman in a patriarchal culture uh, trying to run a business and so on and so forth. Jacob, Jacob just has sin issues. Jacob was a rebel. 
He's deceitful. He's selfish. Uh, kind of a brat, especially early on in his life. He's got issues as well. David, despite the beauty of the Psalms that we have from him, uh, we heard this summer, had pride and arrogance issues. Esther had social and cultural issues. She's an orphan in a, in a culture that did not value orphans. She's a Jew in a Persian culture. Jonah had compassion issues. Jonah lacked mercy and was flat out disobedient against God. Paul had ego and violence issues. He violently persecuted and hated Jesus' people. The woman at the well had sexual morality issues, so much so that she was marginalized and kind of had to sneak around on her own because of her reputation. Peter had social tact issues. Peter's impulsive, impetuous, bombastic at times, constantly putting, putting his foot in his mouth. And then we heard last week that Nehemiah essentially had qualification issues, right? He didn't, have, he didn't go through the right leadership development track. He wasn't from the right class of people to be a leader and so on and so forth. It's likely that you see yourself in one or more of these characters, or maybe you sort of say, you know, as a composite, I could add something to that list. There's a certain measure of health in saying, yes, I too, when measured against the holiness of God, I am, as Romans 3 tells us, I'm unusable. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Don't miss that some of the characters we looked at this morning principally had issues of their own making and others were more circumstantial or, or sort of extrinsic to who they were. It doesn't matter. As we'll look at theologically this morning, from, from the standpoint of uh, uh, what happened at the fall of man and sin, the cross of Christ covers both our own sin and things that have happened against us because of the cause of sin. But this list, this sort of profile of the unusable people begs this question. And it's a question we ask from the angle of, uh, of more of like, how does God use these people? But, but if we back up, it begs this question, and it's this. Who then is usable? Who is it that God can use? If these qualities, these issues that bring to the table are disqualifying, and I probably have one, if not more of them, then who's usable? What hope do any of us stand? You know, David asks this question in the Psalms. After writing his most famous Psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. The very next Psalm, he writes this, he asks this question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Now, David isn't asking about like, uh, uh, he's not referencing a, a hike or a particular mountain for physical reasons. What he's really talking about is Mount Zion, which is representative of the place of the capital city of Jerusalem, which is really representing the idea of the temple, which represents the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, the very place and presence of God. David is asking, who is worthy to come into the presence of a holy God? And he answers the question this way, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. David's answer is, who is usable, if you will? Only he or she who's perfect. Only those who are perfect. And so our first point is that you are unusable. Our second point is that God has put forth an impossible standard. How uplifting, again. <laughs> we'll get there. 
Who is it who can enter the very presence of God? David said, only he who is, has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, there's no secrets here this morning. It's Christ who fulfills that question, right? He is the one who stands in our stead, who is perfect. And so we want to look at the words of Jesus this morning. We're actually going to go to Matthew's gospel, and we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Now, a little bit of background on the Sermon on the Mount and the verses we're going to read this morning. If you're new to the Bible, there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each gospel is written from a certain point of view, uh, from a certain thematic point of view in reference to who Jesus is. Matthew's theme that he concerns himself with is uh, the kingship of Jesus, the divine royalty of Jesus, that, that Jesus is God's promised Messiah, Messiah, not just to be king of Israel, but the king of all kings for all eternity for the redemption of mankind. And so Matthew includes more of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom including five discourses or sermons or speeches that Jesus gives to unveil and reveal about himself, who he is, as not just the Davidic king, but the king of all kings. In this first message, his inaugural discourse, he begins actually describing who the kingdom people of God are. Who are, are, are the subjects of the kingdom, as it were? And so we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 together. He says this, Matthew writes, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and the disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pray with me this morning. Our God and Father, we come to your word this morning, to the very words of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing, God, that your word makes clear that we're all unusable. No matter what the issues that might be besetting issues of our sinfulness and sins that have been done against us, we're all unusable. And yet, God, you have put forth a standard in your word that is, from a human point of view, completely impossible. Lord, I don't know where each person is this morning, whether they're despairing of how unusable they are or they actually think they can attain to some righteousness, goodness of their own. Jesus, would you enter into that tension this morning? Would you reveal yourself to be the only one who can redeem us from being unusable and be the means by which we have any righteousness, a righteousness that comes only from you? Help us to hear well this morning. Help my words to be clear this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What are the Beatitudes? Are they a list of tasks or things to try to accomplish, of attributes to try to embody? How do we approach the Beatitudes this morning? Well, amongst other things, I think what we're going to see this morning is that the Beatitudes describe the people of God. 
One scholar says this about the Beatitudes. He said, looked at as a whole, the Beatitudes become a moral sketch of the type of person, or because the pronouns are actually plural, the type of people who are ready to possess and rule over God's kingdom in company with the Lord Jesus Christ. Note that in, the, in verse 1 of the text that Jesus pulls aside and his disciples come to him. And so he's speaking to us as a body of disciples today through the centuries, through his word to us. To say, here's a composite sketch, here's another profile of the type of people who are my people, who are kingdom people. And so this morning, I want to look at the Beatitudes through that lens a little bit. And I'm going to ask for the help of another pastor this morning, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in the 1930s in Nazi Germany into the 40s. And he wrote a book in 1937 called The Cost of discipleship. He was concerned in what he was seeing in the German church at the time and what he saw in New York City uh, when he came to sem seminary here in the United States about what essentially he called cheap grace. And so he confronts that in this book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he spends a chapter talking about the Beatitudes as a teaching about discipleship. This is what he says about the Beatitudes. He says, the interpretive error in interpreting the Beatitudes, lies in looking for some kind of human behavior as the grounds for the Beatitude instead of a call and promise of Jesus alone. In other words, we might see ourselves being tempted to say, okay, I've got to be a peacemaker and I've got to be someone who's kind of mournful about the hard things of life. And, and as we've already made the point, you'll never get there. But secondarily, he reveals that it's through Christ and Christ alone that God manifests himself in his disciples in a way that looks like these things. And we've seen that through the centuries. So I'm going to use a combination of Bonhoeffer's words and my own, and we're going to take each beatitude, beatitude uh, one at a time, and I want you to look for two things. One, sort of crit critically evaluating our community here, the body of Christ at Groton Bible Chapel. Do we embody this collective quality as the people of God? And secondarily, how is Christ, and specifically his work on the cross, pictured as the means for us to live that way? So A, do you see evidence of that here in this community? And B, how is Christ and his cross the embodying factor for us to live in this manner? We'll take a look at each one. He begins, blessed, Jesus begins, blessed, are the poor in spirit. And Bonhoeffer writes this, it is for the sake of the cross, which embraces all poverty and transforms suffering into glory, that the true disciples of Jesus embody a sincere humility of heart that is contrary to the caricatures of humility that we see in politics, today in social media, and in the larger culture. In other words, what Bonhoeffer is saying is that there's no, there's not, uh, uh, um, humility is not a uniquely Christian attribute per se, right? There's God's common grace in all human beings. We're all image bearers. And so people can be altruistic. They can be kind to people that aren't their friends. They can do all those things. But he says that the, the poor in spirit, the nature of being humble in the state of our heart is unique in the people of God because it's connected to Christ's cross and what he did. And it isn't looking for recognition. It isn't looking for, it's, it's pure. Second beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn. Sorrow, Bonhoeffer says, cannot tire Christ's disciples or wear them down. It cannot embitter them or cause them to break down under the strain. For far from it, the disciples of Jesus bear the sorrow in the strength of him who is such a stranger to the world that it crucified him. He who bore the whole suffering of the world upon the cross. 
He says that sorrow is something that we embody or uh, embrace and walk with people in, not just in a sympathetic way, in an empathetic way. Why? Because that's what Christ did in the cross. We have the Spirit of God, and so we live differently when it comes to sorrow. Blessed are the meek. This company of strangers possesses no inherent right of its own to protect its members out in the world, nor do they claim such rights, for they are meek. When they are reproached, they hold their peace. When they are treated with violence, they endure patiently. They will not make a scene when they suffer injustice, nor do they insist on their legal rights. He says the renewal of the earth begins at Golgotha where the meek one died, and to them it has spread. Says the true discipling community, this doesn't mean that no individual within the community ever acts out when faced with injustice, but through human history, we see that the body of Christ, true disciples of Christ, receive abuse in the spirit of Christ rather than respond in kind. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Not only do followers of Jesus renounce their rights, they also renounce their own sense of self-righteousness too. Always they look forward to the future righteousness of God. They are blessed for in their hunger, they are sustained and satisfied by the bread of life, by Jesus himself. Blessed are the merciful, and this one, Bonhoeffer gets incredibly practical, and it's likely that he's, he's uh, as in his mind, the injustices that were beginning to happen not only against the Jewish people in Germany, but the disabled and any other kind of group that the German Nazis did not see as uh, worth, uh, having any worth. He says this, the disciples have an irresistible love for the downtrodden, the sick, the wretched, the wrong, the outcast, and all who are tortured with anxiety the unusables, if you will. They go out and seek those who are enmeshed in the toil of satanic guilt. No sin is too great, no sin too appalling for their pity. Let me read that again. No sin is too great, no sin too appalling for their pity. If any man falls into disgrace, the merciful will sacrifice their own honor to shield him and take his shame upon themselves. For that is how Jesus the crucified was merciful. And his followers owe their lives entirely to that mercy. And it makes them forget their own honor and dignity. One of our uh, parts of our mission statement, one of the three E's, is that we enfold the lost, the broken, and the hurting, no matter what they come through those doors with. Now, I'm talking about those who don't know Christ, those who've not heard the hope of the gospel, those who've not placed their faith in Christ and Jesus, Christ Jesus. It's different for those of us who are in Christ, who are involved in something we shouldn't be doing. Right? There's a different pattern that the scripture gives us for holding each other accountable and doing church discipline. But for somebody who comes from through those doors who doesn't know Christ, blessed are the merciful in the spirit of what Jesus did in going to the cross for us while we were yet sinners. Blessed are the pure in heart. Purity of heart here is contrasted with outward purity, even the purity of our intentions. And only those whose hearts are fully surrendered to Jesus, that he might reign in them, are truly pure of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. His kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, and his disciples keep the peace by choosing to endure suffering themselves rather than inflict it on others. And so the peacemakers 
will carry the cross with their Lord, for it was on the cross that peace was made. And then finally, we'll group the last two together. Blessed are they who've been persecuted for righteousness' sake. And Jesus says, for when you were reproached and insulted for my name's sake. Like their Savior, like our Savior, it's not recognition, but rejection that is the reward that we will get for our message and for our works as believers in Jesus. And so Bonhoeffer poses this question as he begins to think about uh, these Beatitudes as a character profile. He says this, he says, where is the place on this earth for this kind of community of which the Beatitudes describe? Clearly there's only one place and only one, the cross of Calvary. The fellowship of the Beatitudes, Bonhoeffer says, is the fellowship of the crucified. That's what the church is. Both the big C church globally, but particularly the local church. Those of you who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus are walking with him and are part and committed to this local church, or if you're visiting from another one, we are the community of the crucified. It's a big part of the point that that Bonhoeffer is making. And so I'm going to kind of draw these two profiles to a, a conclusion here. Two profiles. One, uh, in in the unusables that we've talked about all summer, highlights all the ways in which we don't measure up. The other presents this standard of which we really can never attain. This ain't getting any better. Where is the hope in that? The hope is in the gospel. See, what Bonhoeffer is trying to assert is that the Beatitudes don't just describe a ridiculously high or impossible standard for the follower of Jesus. They describe the composite character of Jesus Christ himself. That's why he roots each Beatitude in Christ's character and in his work on the cross specifically for us. And so his pastoral point to us, it's that only as we submit our lives to him that he then transforms us, as we've heard all summer, from being unusable and not just being forgiven, but being effective for the kingdom. J. Vernon McGee says it this way pretty succinctly. He says, it is well to note that they are be attitudes, not do attitudes, which is very un-American, right? It's very un-Western. We want a list of do's. He goes on, he says, they state what the subjects of the kingdom's kingdom are. They are the type of person described in the Beatitudes. If you are a follower of Jesus, if Christ reigns and rules in your life and heart, then you are these qualities collectively as the people of God. We don't always walk it out, but it's, it's true. Because God is a redeeming, restoring God. He moves us from being un, unusable to redeemed to effective. A little bit of a plug and an illustration. One of the ways in in which I spend my summers is kind of looking ahead, looking three, four months ahead, looking a year ahead, looking two years ahead. And in in the closer, it's much more detail. And so thinking about things like uh, our staff and staff development, our, you know, spending time on budgets and all those fun things. But one of the things I really love to do is to think about Thanksgiving and Christmas, and to spend time specifically thinking about how are we going to celebrate Thanksgiving? What's that going to look like? And then what is Advent season? What are we going to be preaching through? And what is the, uh, from a shepherding standpoint, what's the thing that God's calling us to wrestle through as a community of his people? 
This morning, I want to share a little bit about where we're going on Thanksgiving Eve uh, because I'm, I'm really excited about it, and it's illustrative of what we're talking about here. On Thanksgiving Eve, rather than having a message per se, we're going to share th- at least three stories, and the theme of the night is redemption stories. And they're stories of people's lives, an individual and two couples, uh, who have been changed by the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's moved them as they would self-identify from being in that sort of under that umbrella of unusable to being redeemed and usable, but even being effective for the kingdom. And I'm really, really excited uh, for you to hear their stories and, and Lord willing, be compelled to see what God can do further in your lives. We'll tell them through a number of mediums, uh, but it's going to be a great night because this is what God does through Jesus. Yes, you are unusable. Yes, God has given us an impossible standard. He makes that clear in his word. But in Christ, you are beyond usable. You're beyond usable. You are effective for the kingdom. It's what theologians call the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. It's kind of where Mike ended his sermon last Sunday. And for those of you that were outside and we had our outdoor service. It's that you, O believer in Jesus, disciples of Christ, you have or can through faith in Christ the righteousness of Christ here and now. A righteousness that the scripture says is not your own. Theologians call it the alien righteousness of Christ that is given to us. In other words, there's this divine exchange that takes place at the cross where Christ pours out his blood, he he sheds his blood, he pays the penalty for our sins, enduring the wrath of God and punishment for us, and he takes our sins from us. He pays that sin penalty, but then he gives us his own righteousness. He gives us that composite profile of Psalm 24, of the Beatitudes, and imprints it and and imputes it to us. Our lives become a magnification of his life or lived out through his Holy Spirit. We live his risen life. We truly are the community of the crucified, but we're also the community of the resurrected one. Amen? And so a couple of scriptures on this, because this is what Paul teaches, the imputed righteousness of Christ in Romans and Corinthians. He says in Romans 3, the righteousness of God, righteousness meaning right living, living according to God's standard, living out the Beatitudes, living Psalm 23, uh, uh, Psalm 24, He says the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. To whom? To all who believe. And the word belief here isn't just intellectually agreeing with some stuff about Jesus. It's in the spirit of John's gospel. It's believe and receive. It's that the truth of the gospel, the cross of Christ, uh, uh, Christ crucified for me is brought into my life. My life is submitted and surrendered to it that he might have his will and way in me. That's what belief denotes there. Romans 9, Paul goes on, he says, it's so much so that even the non-Jews who weren't pursuing the righteousness of God have obtained it. And how have they obtained it? They've obtained the righteousness by faith. Michael shared near the end of his message last week from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that he made him, God the Father made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, to be cursed for us, to be punished for us. Why? So that we might be the righteousness of God. That was God's good pleasure, as some of your Bibles will say uh, in one of the verses that we'll look at in a moment. We didn't look at yet. This is what God accomplishes in us. Through Christ, you can have the righteousness of Christ. Now, at the same time, as we read the Beatitudes, as we read the entire Sermon on the Mount, Christ expects obedience from his disciples. And you say, well, wait a minute, how does that work? 
If we have the righteousness of Christ, then why is it that we're then expected to obey? Jesus, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives a short parable to drive home the point of following what he has taught, and namely to following its submission to who he is. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the wind blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and it collapsed with a great crash. Some of your Bibles will say with calamity. Christ is calling not that just that we obey his teaching, but that our lives are in line and surrendered and submitted to he himself. You want to live your life on a foundation of sound theology? Live your life around the person and work of Jesus Christ. You want to live your life on a foundation of good philosophy? Submit your life and orient your life around the person and work of Christ. You want to live your life around good morality? Submit your life and live your life, orient your life around Christ and his cross. You want to live your life uh, from a standpoint and foundation of great practicality for how to live this life, how to worldview this life. Live your life, orient it around Christ and his cross. You see, the gospel is not just the answer to how we're saved, to our salvation, how we're made right with God, how we're justified. But it's also the answer to how we are obedient to God, how what the Bible calls our sanctification, that process of becoming more Christ-like, how we are effective for the kingdom. The gospel is the answer to both. Two verses that uh, we've quoted often over the last couple of years. Paul says in Philippians 2, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do what it takes to obey what you see in Scripture, even the Beatitudes. Pursue spiritual dis- disciplines with fervor. Get up at 5 a.m. if that's what it means for you to have time to be devoted to his word. Share the gospel with that coworker. Yes, with trembling, with nervousness. But do it. Obey it. Paul says immediately after that, for it is God who works in you to will and to do. Somehow in the mysterium tremendum that is God's plan of the gospel, he calls us to work out our salvation while he is at work within us. We see this too in Titus chapter 2. Paul says in Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people We talked last year about God's grace appeared in the form of a person, a man, Jesus Christ. But the very next line says that the grace of God that appeared instructs us, teaches us, demands of us really to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That means that we turn away from, we actively deny, even to the point of sacrifice or discomfort, our own desires to indulge and to step into things that we want to do whether those be fleshly appetites or whatever they are. We're going to spend five weeks talking about biblical sexuality and theological anthropology and all these things. And it's a big part of these five messages. Is what does it mean for someone who's redeemed by the gospel to step away from, as as Paul calls it, worldly lusts? It's clearly commanded in Scripture But the same dichotomy is there at the end of the passage. Listen to what Paul says. Because he, Jesus Christ, gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. 
So we are told, instructed through the gospel, to turn away from and deny ungodliness and worldly lust because Christ has redeemed us from all lawlessness. Both are happening at the same time. You see, in the Beatitudes, Jesus puts forth a standard that is so high, it directs us to him. It directs us to him as the fulfillment of it, the standard, but it also directs us to faith in him as the means to achieving that standard as the people of God. So I don't know where you're at this morning. It's, it's perhaps likely that some of you, you didn't need to be the, the reminder that you're unusable. You've been feeling it and living it all summer. You're kind of wallowing in this dark place of knowing things we don't know about why you're unusable. Or maybe, God forbid, you hear that standard and you say, I can attain to most of that. In either of those places, Christ enters into that moment. And if you're in despair over here, he says, this is why, brother, sister, I gave myself for you. This is why I came. I loved you so much that I went all the way to the cross to redeem you. Psalm 40 says, he lifted me up out of the pit and set my feet on a rock. That rock thematically all the way through Scripture is Christ himself. But to you who see that in it, you're in a different place, that I can, I can get there. Christ compels you as Lord and King to humble yourself before his mighty hand. He is the only means of salvation. It is not to be found in us alone. This is what we want to reflect on as we come to the Lord's table this morning. We come to be reminded that we're unusable, that God has set an, a standard that we cannot attain, and that's exactly why Jesus came. He gives his body broken for our redemption. He sheds his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so I'm going to invite you to take out your little cup. I want to give you a few seconds to just reflect the reason that we do this, brothers and sisters, the reason that we come is to be reminded of the cost of our salvation, to be reminded of the salient points that we've talked about this morning. And we just surrender to what Christ has done. So Jesus, with his disciples at the Last Supper, he takes bread, he breaks it. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Folks, this morning, all around the world, perhaps millions of Christians in different, slightly different traditional approaches to this are taking this broken bread to remember what Jesus has done for us. And this cup to remember what he has done for us. And this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, this is for you. If you're not, if you know you're not a Christian this morning, this feast, symbolic feast, is not for you. It's for those who are Jesus' people, that community of the crucified, if you will. So I'm going to give thanks, and we'll take the bread together. Our God and Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for, for each one of us, Lord. Jesus, I thank you for your willingness. Lord, I think of you in the Garden of Gethsemane, lamenting over and struggling with and wrestling 
with not just the physicality of your sacrifice and the beatings and all that was going to take place, but the, the suffering for our sins, the justice and wrath of your father, the, the forsaking of your fathers, he would turn away from you, that you, holy God, Lord Jesus, would know our sin and that you would pay for it. And so, Lord, we take this bread as recognition of what you've done and in obedience to what you've asked us to do until you come again. Lord, we look forward to a day when we won't do this because we will be with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take the bread this morning. Throughout the entire scripture, consistently blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, it's the blood of animals and it's a temporary covering. They had to keep doing it repeatedly, Hebrews tells us, because it, it wasn't effective for the long term. But then Hebrews says Jesus comes and it's one sacrifice for, for all time for all people. That Jesus' blood is poured out and our sins aren't just covered, they're washed away. And so Jesus, in his genius as a teacher, gives us this object lesson to remember that. Let's give thanks for the cup. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood poured out on Calvary's hill. And Lord, I thank you, Jesus, and I know I speak on behalf of my brothers and sisters for this simple, visual, tactile reminder because God, there are times in my life where I start to think I deserve it. And I need to be reminded of the great cost of my salvation and my sanctification, Lord, that Jesus, that you gave yourself and poured out your blood. And so, Lord, we worship you. We thank you. We do this because you asked us to, but also because it helps us to remember who we worship and why. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Take the cup. Before I give thanks for the offering, just a couple of quick points and a final quote. And then we're going to end singing this beautiful song of worship. We take an offering on communion Sundays for a variety of reasons, but one of those reasons is that it takes what is symbolic and what Christ has asked us to do in communion. It takes the spoken word and it puts it into something that, that actually affects our lives in a very practical way in terms of our finances. Now, similar to taking the bread and the cup, if you're not a believer in Jesus and this isn't the local church you're committed to, this is not for you. Maybe that's the upside if you're really wrestling with who Jesus is. We don't want you to give if you're not a believer in Jesus, but we would implore you, seek the answers to the questions that are keeping you from committing your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might join this family. For those of us that this is our home church, we invite you to give in a variety of ways that'll appear on the screen behind me in the time that the Lord leads you. And we wanna give thanks for this offering but I want to share with you a final quote. And this is by Henry Ironside. It really pulls together all the themes that we've been talking about in a very succinct way this morning. That Christ wants to live his resurrected life through his people. That his life is glorified, magnified, and lived through us as we submit ourselves to him. Here's what he says. He says, if men are seeking salvation by human effort, then this sermon, meaning the Sermon on the Mount, can only condemn them for it presents a standard of righteousness even higher than the law of Moses and thus exposes the hopelessness of the sinner to attain it. That's what we talked about this morning. But he who confesses his sinfulness and in faith turns to Christ and obeys the instruction given here builds upon a rock which cannot be shaken. 
It is the hope of Christ. And so we literally say that, Christ, you can have everything, even my money too. And what a privilege to participate in what God's doing as we join together in giving. Let's give him thanks for the offering this morning. Lord God, we thank you for the generosity of your people that is a small token and a response of your generosity in giving yourself at the cross. Lord, that we get the privilege of giving a small token of everything that you've given us and then seeing it multiplied and do things all over the world for your kingdom, whether it be in our backyard here in Groton, whether it be in places like Poland or in India or in Haiti, Lord, that we get to participate knowing our unusable state without Jesus and what you're doing throughout the world, Lord, it's mind-blowing. And so God, we, we gleefully give you our offerings. In Jesus' name, amen.